You're listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. This is a two-part section in which we're going to take a look this week and next week at the pathophysiology of shock, what you need to know, and by being out of sight and out of mind, could be deadly for your patient. This lecture, we're going to take a look at what's happening in the shock process at a cellular level. One way that shock has been called or described is a rude and unhinging of the machinery of life. Others have called it a pause in the process of dying. Bottom line is that shock is essentially inadequate perfusion at the cellular level. This is why we place so much emphasis on understanding the concepts of how the human body functions on a cellular level, as well as even on a more holistic level. It's important to remember that shock is not a single state of being. It has multiple factors that can lead to the worsening of it, as well as if we identify it, reversing one of those factors, we can make it better. In the past, some medics have felt that shock didn't occur until the blood pressure dropped below 100 systolic. The bottom line here is they're wrong and for your patient, potentially dead wrong. You can't identify shock through any one single vital sign or any other single symptom. You must look at the body as a whole and be aware of what's going on behind the scenes. If you understand what shock is, essentially a cell that is hypoxic, then you'll be able to develop a care plan for your patient that you're taking care of at 3 a.m. on the side of the interstate and nothing is working. It'll be that time when you scratch your head and say, we didn't cover this in class. Now what do I do? In order for the body to function, it requires a number of processes. One is that of adequate delivery of oxygen to the cells. Without oxygen, the cells are unable to form the energy needed for cellular life and ultimately life as a human being. Let's take a look at the three parts of human oxygenation. First, external respiration. According to your textbook, External respiration is defined as the transfer of oxygen molecules from the air into the blood. The air that we breathe is 21% oxygen and 79% nitrogen. It's in this phase that we must be the most particular regarding the mechanics of breathing and to ensure that there's an open and patent airway. It's at this point that we've got to be really, really good at clearing out any obstructions and positioning our patients so that the passage of air has no obstacles. Oxygen delivery occurs when oxygen moves from the alveoli into the red blood cells, attaching themselves to hemoglobin. Keep in mind that for every molecule of hemoglobin, it can hold four molecules of oxygen. Therefore, don't be misled when your pulse oximeter shows 100% oxygenation, when half of your patient's blood volume may be lying on the side of the interstate. Oxygen consumption is the amount of oxygen that the body itself utilizes in one minute. Internal respiration occurs when the red blood cells make their way to the individual cells of the body. And by way of diffusion, the oxygen transfers from its higher areas of content in the red blood cell to areas of lower content within the cells themselves. This oxygen is utilized in the Krebs cycle to produce ATP, which is the energy utilized by the body. During this process, there's a number of byproducts that are developed, the two main ones being carbon dioxide and water. If there's no oxygen present, metabolism still continues. However, it's not nearly as efficient and much more in the area of waste products are given off in the form of lactic acid. This is known as anaerobic metabolism. Shock has been recognized by medical personnel for over 300 years. Even today, with all of our advances in medicine, stopping shock still remains an elusive goal at times. 
Being able to identify it in its earliest stages will lead to a much more positive outcome for your patient rather than waiting for overt signs and symptoms to present themselves. We learned more about shock over the last 10 to 12 years as a result of military action in the Middle East than at just about any other time in the past. Let's take a few moments and go through the understanding of the pathophysiology of shock. As you should know, the body is composed of many cells that band together to form organ systems. Each of these cells require oxygen. In addition, they must have fuel in the form of glucose. When functioning correctly for every molecule of glucose that's available for the body to use, 38 molecules of ATP will be delivered. This is only true, however, when oxygen is present. When oxygen is not available, the amount of ATP drops dramatically. In fact, during anaerobic metabolism, only two ATP molecules are produced. It's quite evident that in the amount of energy available body is almost cut by 50%. At its core, shock is a lack of or inadequate perfusion at the cellular level. Being able to understand shock and how it occurs at the cellular level will better enable you to develop a care plan for your patient. What you do in the first few minutes of caring for your patient may make a difference as to whether your patient lives or not. Keep in mind that what you do or don't do may lead to the patient's death, even if it occurs days or weeks later. If the patient is in anaerobic metabolism for very long, waste products begin to build up quickly and are unable to be removed from the cells. As a result of this, the body becomes more acidic and eventually the cell wall ruptures, causing the cell to die. Your textbook talked about the Fick principle. This was developed by a physician by the name of Adolf Fick in the year 1870. Basically, this principle is based upon three components. First, the amount of oxygen that's delivered to the red blood cells and passed from the alveoli into the red blood cells, generally and specifically to the hemoglobin. Second, Anything that impairs or improves the delivery of those red blood cells to the tissue has an impact on oxygenation and thusly whether there's aerobic or anaerobic metabolism. The last component is whether or not those red blood cells are able to offload the oxygen to the distant cells and pick up carbon dioxide from those same cells to be delivered elsewhere. This is why it's so imperative that you not be misled by the limitations of pulse oximetry. Pulse ox only measures the percentage of red blood cells that have something attached to them. Your pulse ox could read 100%, and yet that 100% could be carbon monoxide attached to the hemoglobin. As you recall from your EMT class, carbon monoxide has about a 200 times greater affinity for hemoglobin than does oxygen. A second pathophysiology that could negatively impact circulation and lead you to have false dependence on your pulse ox would be as if your patient has massive blood loss. Remember, the pulse ox only gives you a percentage of attached gases to the red blood cells. It does not tell you a numeric. Therefore, your patient could lose half of its circulating volume of blood and potentially still show up as having a 100% pulse ox. Just a friendly reminder here, treat your patient, not your monitor. Adequate cellular perfusion is made up of three components, the pump, the vasculature, and the fluid. Another way of putting this would be from a fire service perspective. In order to fight fire, you need an engine, fire hose, and water. The loss of any one of these three can lead to a loss of property or life. The same thing holds true when dealing with shock. In shock, one or more of either the pump or the vasculature or the fluid is negatively impacted. 
This reduces the amount of blood flow to the cells, resulting in anaerobic metabolism, an increase in waste products, and your patient becoming more acidic. Although there's many etiologies that lead to shock, we'll confine our discussions to three categories. Each of these categories deal with one of the components that we spoke about in the previous slides. They are as follows. Hypovolemic, generally related to the loss of circulating blood or plasma. Distributive, which is known as vasogenic. This refers to the inability of the blood vessels to constrict when needed in order to keep the circulating blood pressure. And lastly, cardiogenic, most of the time caused by myocardial infarction. This relates to the inability of the heart to act as an effective pump. The mean arterial pressure is a much more effective manner of evaluating the perfusionary status of your patient than to rely on blood pressure alone. Rather than giving a pulse-by-pulse -pulse blood pressure, it actually gives you an average amount of pressure that's found within the vascular system, specifically the arterial system. It's calculated by taking the diastolic pressure and adding it to one-third of the pulse pressure. Keep in mind that the pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressures themselves. What should your mean arterial pressure be? Normal MAP pressures, MAP ranges are between 70 and 110 millimeters of mercury. A minimum of 60 is needed to provide enough blood to nourish the coronary arteries, kidneys, and brain. When the MAP falls below 60 for a considerable amount of time, organs may become deprived of the oxygenation that they need. Let's take a look at the fluid component of the circulatory system, namely the blood. It's made up of four primary components. First, the red blood cells, which carry oxygen. Next, the white blood cells, whose primary job is to respond anytime an infection in the form of a bacteria or a virus presents itself. Third, platelets, as well as clotting agents that help to stem blood loss during trauma. And lastly, plasma. Plasma serves as an expender to help maintain the blood pressure. Thanks again for listening to this week's presentation of Pathophysiology of Shock. Next week, we'll continue with part two of this lecture.